All right. Acts chapter 26. Acts chapter 26, verse 14. We'll be reading there in a moment. Um, Acts is in the New Testament, right after the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, right before Romans. Uh, so there is an urban legend of a confrontation with a U.S. naval ship and encountering an unknown bogey at sea. And this is the transcript from the conversation as it allegedly took place. The U.S. naval ship uh, carrier calls out on the radio to this bogey and says, please divert your course 15 degrees to the north to avoid a collision. The bogey then responds, we recommend you divert your course 15 degrees to the south to avoid collision. The carrier then responds, this is the captain of a U.S. Navy ship. I say again, divert your course. And then the bogey responds, no, I say again, you divert your course. The carrier then responds, this is the aircraft carrier USS Lincoln the second largest ship in the United States Atlantic Fleet. We are accompanied by three destroyers, three cruisers, numerous support vessels, and I demand that you change your course 15 degrees to the north, that is 15 degrees north, or countermeasures will be taken to ensure the safety of this ship. The bogey then responds, this is a lighthouse, your call. And so, like the aircraft carrier, we tend to think sometimes that we're pretty tough, and we know what we're doing, and we know where we're going, and we've got it figured out. But then we encounter the unmovable authority of Jesus Christ, and he tells us we must change course to be saved. And resisting Christ is no better than commanding a lighthouse to change course. It simply will not work, and you will find yourselves on the rocks. So we must hear the calling of Christ and heed to his change course command so that we, must, so that we will be saved and remain on the path of salvation. So let's look at our text this morning, Acts 26, verse 14, which says, And, when we, and uh, let me give you some background. This is Paul recounting his, uh, his coming to salvation on the road to Damascus when Jesus Christ encounters him and compels him to be saved. And Paul is telling this story, and he says, And when we had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Is it hard for you to kick against the goads? So this morning I want to preach a sermon I've entitled, Change Course. Let's pray. Father God, I Thank you, Lord, for meeting with us in this place. God, I'm asking, Lord, that your spirit, God, would guide the words, God, would guide the hearts and the minds of each person in this place, God, that we would be open and willing to hear from you today. In Jesus' name, amen. So in this text, Paul refers to something called a goad. How many know what a goad is? Right? <laughs> um, I... And I re I've read this text, you know, growing up, of course, you know, I, I've told you guys before, I was a church kid, I, I, I heard the stories and all that stuff, and, and I would hear that word goad, and I would think, I don't know what that means. 
and then I'd move on with my life, right? You see, the goad was a tool of a shepherd, and it was not always the first tool that they would go to. See, usually the shepherd will use first what is known as the staff. We all know what a staff is, right? And so I have a picture to illustrate what a staff looks like. That's not it. Go to the next one. That's the staff. And so the shepherd will use this to kind of give a little tap on the side of their livestock, whatever it is, whether it be a sheep or an ox for plowing the fields. And they will train their animals to kind of boom, boom, feel a little tap and they go, oh, okay, you know, just get back in, get back in line. And sometimes God will nudge us like that. Sometimes he'll give us a little pat, a little nudge and say, hey, you're getting a little distracted. You're getting a little off course. You're getting a little and consumed. And he will use a little gentle nudge to move us back on course for his will. It can be lots of different things. You know, obviously a, a angelic staff doesn't come from heaven and kind of bonk us a little bit and we go, well, okay, you know, but God will orchestrate things and he will do things in our lives. Things like chance encounters with people that, um, Maybe we don't always talk to, but they come in the right time with a message in due season. Uh, inspiring messages out of place. You know, you t turn on the radio and they happen to be talking about exactly what you're going through. And it's like, whoa, you know, things that God uh, can do to get our attention. Sometimes it's trouble in life. You know, sometimes the staff is a boom, boom, and sometimes it's a poof, <laughs> right? But it's still a blunt object. It's still uh, uh, not uh, a whole lot of pain to even get smacked with that a whole lot at best, you know, a bruise that will force us to lean on him. But a goad, a goad is not a staff. A goad is not a nudge. A goad is a strong warning. It brings pain and it's a warning to the livestock. In this case, speaking of oxes generally was what the goad was used for. It says, here is some pain to avoid worse pain. And so let's look at the picture of the goad. That ain't no staff. That looks like it hurts. So when a farmer would goad his ox, it was a firm and it was a painful warning to change course. And so they would use this only if necessary, or perhaps they would use the not sharp side to kind of guide them like the staff would be. And if the ox was being stubborn, they'd whip, turn it around and... And imagine getting hit with one of those. I mean, that would hurt. This was a strong and firm warning. Get back on course immediately. And so this encounter that Paul had with Jesus, many scholars agree, and I agree as well, that this was likely God's last warning to Paul. You look in our text, and he says, Ver, uh, chapter 26, verse 14, Jesus appears to him and says in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Is it hard for you to kick against the goads? So now that we know what a goad is and we read this text, we realize Jesus is saying, is it hard for you? So in other words, he's been goading him. And not only has he been goading him, but he's kicking against it. You know, sometimes those ox get stubborn. 
And when they get goaded, they, they get even more stubborn. You see, many of us here, we know that before this encounter that Paul had with Jesus Christ, his main gig, his, his main thing that he was doing with his life was literally the opposite. He was persecuting Christians. And God was goading Paul through these experiences. Think about that. Why Paul was coming after his people, God was goading him, warning him to get back on course, to get on course. And in our text, um, not long before he got saved, in Acts chapter 7, verse 54, we see an encounter where, where Paul, formerly known as Saul, is persecuting the church. Picking up in verse 54, it says, And now when they had heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. And th- when they say these things, we're talking about the gospel. They were preaching the gospel to this crowd, and they got all mad. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they, but they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And they were stoning Stephen, and he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And then verse 1 of chapter 8 tells us that, And Saul approved of his execution. This is the man that we're talking about in our text. He wasn't just some dude who was out there living in the world and living in sin and God was trying to... He was literally persecuting the Christian church. And many commentators believe that God was dealing with Paul through this experience and likely through experiences before. And this heavenly vision that... that uh, that Stephen saw, it describes in this text, this prayer for forgiveness, that as he's saying these things, and Paul is hearing him speak these things as they're murdering him, that they're goading, that God is using these things to goad him, to goad his heart. And maybe God was dealing with them in this situation. Maybe God was goading Paul. But what we see as chapter 8 continues is that Paul still isn't getting the message. He's still kicking against the goads. He continues the persecution of Jesus and his church. And when we resist Christ, we put ourselves in a dangerous place, saved or unsaved. You know, Christians can resist Christ. So if y'all are saved in here thinking, well, I ain't me. Well, sometimes we can resist the will of God. You see, whether it's nudges or goads, resisting Christ is not a good situation to be in. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Is it hard for you to kick against the goads? So what is kicking against the goads? It's exactly what it sounds like now that we know what a goad is. Imagine, you know, the farmers out there, they're plowing the fields, they got their ox, everything's hooked up, and the ox is getting off course. And so they give them a little nudge. Ox continues off course. And so they give him a little jab. And what does the ox do? He tries to fight back. 
And so he's he's telling Paul, why are you kicking? Don't you understand? These goads are for your good. And here you are. <laughs> right? Think about this. I look pretty stupid doing But you know, sometimes when we kick against the goads, we look pretty stupid. And there's people in our lives that watch us do it. And, we th- and, and they're thinking, man, why can't they just get it? Why? I see it. They feel it. They're feeling it. I'm not feeling it. Sometimes, like seriously, sometimes when we are kicking against the goads, when we're resisting the call of Christ, we look pretty stupid. Right? It, and it's a lot stupider than... Trying to kick something we can't kick. How many know we kick back at God? Ain't nothing going to happen to God. But this is a, a sign of stubbornness. He's saying, Paul, why are you being so stubborn? I know you're getting my messages. I know you're feeling the goads. Why are you persecuting me? Is it hard for you to kick against the goads? Think about that. His stubbornness. He was so set in his ways. That he was resisting. God had gotten to goading him. And thankfully we know from the story that Saul eventually responded to the goads from God. But there was one man long before him who did not. In fact, way, way, way before him. His name was Cain. All the way back in Genesis chapter 4 verses 3 through 7. We read this story and it says, In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought an offering uh, of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. And the Lord re- had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain, his offering, he had no regard. And so Cain was very angry and his face fell. A little insight, that term face fell was uh, in, in the original language is basically speaking of depression. So he got angry and depressed. And the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. God gave a very clear warning, a goad to Cain. He's trying to tell Cain, Cain, don't you understand? If you just do well, if you just pursue me, if you just live the way I've commanded you to, you'll be accepted. And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Sometimes God's telling us that. That in this certain area of our lives, in a certain place that we're in, God's saying, don't you get it? Just, you must master your sin. Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. You know, this portion of text is highly debated throughout um, commentaries because we don't really actually know what Cain's sin is, right? We know from the story later on he kills his brother, so maybe it was anger. They, people tend to wonder about his offering that he brought to God. Maybe it wasn't the best of the best. Maybe he did it out of obligation and not out of thankfulness. Maybe it was something different altogether. And I believe God is pretty smart. I think he left it ambiguous for a reason, because we can take that story, we can take that, that warning from God, and apply it to any area of our lives as Christians. Sin is crouching at the door. 
Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Every single one of us here, we have a weak point. We have a spot that we're prone to. We have an area of our life that is difficult to manage. And God tells each and every one of us that, that the desire of that sin is to rule over you, but you must rule over it. Maybe it was anger. Maybe it was offering money. Maybe it's lust. Maybe it's uh, uh, addiction. Maybe it's this or that or whatever. I, I don't have to get creative because every single one of us is already thinking of it. And the warnings from God tells us you must rule over it. You see, ruling over our sin, that's easier said than done, right? Ruling over our struggles, that's easier said than done. But God tells us you have to overcome it. And thankfully, we have the help of the Holy Spirit. Thankfully, we have the help of our brothers and sisters in the church. As iron sharpens iron, we can go to each other in accountability. And the unfortunate continuation of Cain's story shows us that he did not conquer his sin. And through all of this, through his anger and his depression, he allowed his anger to overcome him and he ends up murdering his own brother, Abel. And as the story goes on, he, he gets uh, consequences for that sin. God banishes him from the land. And he has to live in desolation and you read the story, it goes on, and he begins a family line that is riddled with pain and generational curses. Think about that. Cain could not overcome his sin. He could not overrule his desire. And it did not affect just Cain. It affected generations of his family. But God goaded him. He guided him. He warned him, Cain, you have to just... Trust me on this. And it all could have been different if he would have heeded to the words of God, but he resisted God's guidance. And still to this day, the, the warning is the same. Jesus says to Saul, and he says to many of us, is it hard for you to kick against the goads? You feel me prodding you, but you only resist the course change. You, not only are you resisting it, you're fighting back. It's as if he's telling Saul, Saul, you've seen what my people are doing. You felt my love through them, even though you're the one coming after them. Stop resisting. And you know, Jesus, it's not because Jesus is afraid of the persecution of Paul against the church. It's not because he's worried about how effective his persecution is. In fact, if you look back at the history of the early church, a, a trend that shows is that the stronger the persecution got, the more rapidly the faith grew in the land. You see, Jesus was warning him, not because he was afraid of him, but because Jesus loved him and desired to use him according to his purpose. Jeremiah 29, 11, one of the most popular verses in the whole Bible. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Such a promising verse in the Bible, but it's important to remember. When God said this to Israel, this was God calling out to rebellious Israel. He was calling out to them, desiring that they would respond to his goading. 
and return to him because they were far from him. God's telling them, I know the plans I have for you, but you aren't walking in them. Imagine it, how much less popular that verse would be if, that, if God said that part. I know the plans I have for you, but you're not pursuing them, declares the Lord. It'd be on a lot less walls. Plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope, but you are going towards evil. You're going towards hopelessness. He's telling them this. I have plans for you, but you're not walking in them. You see, God doesn't goad you because he's afraid of what you'll do against him. We can't touch him. When we kick against the goads, we're we're kicking the air. We're kicking it. We're not going to damage God's will. He doesn't goad us because he desperately needs us. Because, oh man, if I don't get this person in the will of God, my plan's spoiled. I'm not going to be able to save all humanity after all. No, we can't do anything to affect the will of God. No matter how hard we try, and some people try. He goads you because he loves you. Hebrews 12, verses 5 through 6 says, and have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. You see, sometimes, the, sometimes you know, we, we, we spank our kids not because we're angry, right? But because we want to teach them how to be good people. That's the illustration the writer of Hebrews is drawing here, that God doesn't doesn't discipline you because he's mad at you. God doesn't discipline you because you deserve it. Listen, if we got the discipline we deserved, we'd be doomed. God doesn't discipline us just to get at us and to prove a point. He disciplines us because he loves us, because he wants to develop us into the godly man or woman he desires us to be that we would have a better relationship with him and find salvation through Jesus Christ. You know, the more, more, the most, more disciplined we are in the things of God, the closer we are to God. And that's why Christianity has this fine line between relationship and religion, and many people tend to be so opposite on the relationship part that they forget to discipline themselves, and they don't actually have a relationship with God. Right, The difference between religion, religion and relationship isn't practice. It's mindset and heart. Religion says, check these boxes and you'll be saved. Relationship says, obey the commands of Christ because you love him. But oftentimes at face value, they look pretty similar. That we can be disciplined in our walk with Christ. And that when he guides us, when he goads us, we can respond without being stubborn. You know, he doesn't do it. Just, he, he, God doesn't whip out the goad just, just for no reason, right? Sometimes we might feel that way because we're like, God, I don't really see what's going on here. Sometimes he'll goad us and we're like, I, I, don't, I don't know why you're doing this, why this is happening. But we must trust him. Because ultimately, you think about the illustration, we're the oxen, he's the guy in the, whatever you call it, the wagon, that sees where we're going. Like, we can only see so far. 
In comparison, we're just dumb animals. Sorry. And so if the, if, the, if the shepherd is sitting in his wagon and they're plowing a field, I don't know how many of you have ever plowed a field before. I haven't. But you got to go straight lines. If you start going wiggly and crazy, and it gets difficult to maintain that shape, and you're not using your land properly, and the the, the shepherd will go, hey, no, we're we're not going straight. We're getting a little diagonal here. We got to straighten out. And the ox doesn't know that. He's just going right. He's got his yoke on, and he's just plowing his fields. And the shepherd goes a little to the left. Okay, I don't know why. Right? Sometimes God will go to us. He'll put us in a direction. We don't have to know why. Sometimes we, we think we have to know why. Or even more so, you know, if the ox is headed for a cliff, you better believe that that shepherd's going to whip out that goat. Dude, you better stop or we're both going to die. <laughs> right? The farmer will do whatever he has to do to return to course. He will goad that ox until it bleeds out if he has to. But he does it for the well-being of the farm. Let's call that the kingdom of God. He does it for the well-being of the ox. That's you and I. So that we don't walk right over a cliff. And he does it so we can accomplish the mission at hand, advancing the kingdom of God. You see, if we are on a path of destruction to hell, God is going to do what is necessary to get us on course for our own good. That's why we pray for sinners. That's why we pray for people who aren't saved, so that we pray that God will goad them. Like, sometimes we, we miss that, right? We want, we want to pray for our, our family and friends that are living in sin. We're like, we just want them to have, like, this pleasant, like, revelation and come to God. No, sometimes I pray, like, God, smack them over the face with a Holy Spirit two-by-four if that's what it takes to get them saved. I don't care. I don't care if they lose everything in the process as long as they find eternal life. God, whip out the goats. Whip out the cat of nine tails. Get that person saved. But you know, some people, no matter what God does, they just continue to kick against the goats. It is very difficult to kick against the goats of God. But also for us, it's very costly. It can cost us our eternal, saved or not saved. If we kick against the nudges and goads of God, eventually we may find ourselves plowing way off course. We must be receptive to God's nudges and goads in our lives and get on course when he calls us to and allow God to lead us. Because we acknowledge the authority of God's goading. We realize, hey, you're the one driving this wagon. I can only see as far as I can see, but you have the vantage point. You know the destiny. You know the purpose. You know the will for my life. And I don't always see it that way. We acknowledge God's authority. And so Saul recounts this story in Acts 26, verse 14, our text. And he's saying, When we had fallen to the ground, I heard the voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Is it hard for you to kick against the goads? Now, when Paul is speaking these words, he is testifying to King Agrippa about his conversation, about his conversion and about Jesus Christ. He is testifying and witnessing before a king. 
And as I said before, this encounter that he had with Jesus was likely Paul's last chance, his last call, and thankfully he responded. And verse 26 or chapter 26, verse 19, a few verses later, he says, And therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. He listened. He obeyed. He finally stopped kicking against the goads. And then a crucial part of his testimony, verse 22, he tells King Agrippa, To this day I have had the help that comes from God, And so I stand here testifying, both to small and great. He is saying, because I responded to that one last goad, I was able to change course. I was able to get back on track. And because of that, I experienced the supernatural help from God that I needed to live this life. Paul turned from his ways and followed Christ and experienced help that can only come from God in this life. So perhaps life wasn't easy going and perfect for Paul. Maybe it's not for some of us all the time. Even after his conversion, you read his story, it it wasn't hunky-dory from then on out. In fact, we all, I guarantee you, have it easy-peasy compared to the life of Paul. I've preached about that before. Many of you probably remember the different persecutions that he went through. So his life wasn't easy. It wasn't easy going after that. He's still plowing a field. It's still work. It's still labor. But he had God on his side that can make the burdens of life so much more bearable. And Jesus talks about this, this yoke and the burdens of life in Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30, the words of Christ. It says, Come to me, all who are... All who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Think about this. Are we tired? Are we tired of the letdowns of the world? Are we tired of struggling on our own power to overcome life, to overcome our sin, to overcome situations of our lives? Are we tired of living our life the way it is, perpetually going through these cycles that seem to never end? Are we tired of kicking against the goads of God? Then we must let Jesus help us. Because you can find rest in Him. That's what He says. You, I will give you rest. Think about that. You know, no matter what, we're laboring for something. We're plowing a field. So we're either plowing in God's kingdom or, or we're plowing in the world. And Jesus makes that clear. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. And he says, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You know what that means? We still got work to do when we're saved. We still labor. We still experience burdens. We still experience hardships. But when we're following the guidance of God, he knows the path. He knows the way. There might be some hard ground along the way. There might be some difficulties and struggles along the way. But when we trust in God, we experience labor that is worth it. We experience labor that is doable. You ever heard the the phrase that, that says, God will never give you battles too strong for you? Yeah, that's not true. 
We fight plenty of battles that are way too hard for us. That's why we need God. It doesn't say that anywhere in the Bible. Some people think that's a Bible verse. It ain't in the Bible. In fact, the concept contrary to it is everywhere in the Bible. You fight battles on your own in the world or in, in the kingdom, you will lose. But when you fight from the strength of God with the power of the Holy Spirit within you, then you are supernaturally empowered to overcome things that you can't overcome on your own. And so Saul, from our text, he goes from being a wicked man persecuting God and persecuting Christians to a powerful man of God and being used by God. Paul finally responds to Jesus' goading. And as we all know, this results in a life of ministry for Paul. It, re it results in him going and doing missionary work and starting and leading many churches around the area of that world. And even then, he writes one-third of the New Testament. Think about that. A man kicking against the goads, killing Christians. And he finally stops kicking against the goads. And look at what God does with his life. Jesus did this with him. What can he do with you? Listen, saved or not saved in this place, what areas of your life are you resisting God? What areas of your life are you resisting God's guidance or his goad? Some of y'all are feeling it right here in the side. He's goading you. And you're sitting there kicking like an idiot. When God's saying, don't you, don't you understand? This is for your good. You know, you have to wonder, why did Saul resist? I, I firmly believe that this wasn't Jesus' first attempt to get to, to get to Saul. That it wasn't just like, he's sitting there watching everything, goes, all right, showtime, boom. Right? He says, Saul, why are you kicking against the goads? This, the way he words it, he's very clearly been trying to get Saul's attention for a while, and finally, he literally knocks him off his high horse, and he says, dude, don't you get it? Why did it take him so long? Why did he resist? You think about him. You know, he had a lot of authority. He was a high up in the Jewish rankings. So maybe he was worried about losing his authority. Maybe he was worried about letting down his family. Maybe he was worried about losing his security, right? He's, he's not really exactly going to be welcome in the position he was in anymore if he converts to Christianity, which was basically the enemy. Maybe he was worried about looking like a fool to his peers. That's a crazy one to me, but I think one of the most common ones for people who want to get saved. They're like, man, my friends are going to make fun of me. Guess what? When you're in heaven and they're in hell, they can't make fun of you no more. <laughs> Lord willing, they go to heaven with you. Well, Lord is willing. Them willing, they go to heaven with you. Such a Maybe he was worried about it being such a drastic change. You know, Some people don't like change. Right? Yeah, I think I should get saved, but uh, it's a lot of change. <laughs> it's crazy how humans can be sometimes. Even changes that we know darn well are good for us. We're like, eh, it's a lot of change. <laughs> Paul's mind, he doesn't document it. All the stuff he writes, he doesn't talk about it. But what we do know is that finally he got it. 
Finally, he realized what was at stake in resisting Christ. Finally, he realized that what was at stake in resisting Christ was far greater than anything he was worried about before, and he could no longer kick against the goats. You see, we might have reasons why we kick against the goats. We're afraid of change. We like our sin too much. We're afraid of disappointing our family, losing our jobs, or whatever it is. But if we let those things stop us from following the call of God, you know what we can lose is eternal life. In Matthew 25, verse 46, Jesus speaks about those who answer the call of Christ and those who resist the call of Christ. And he says, these, speaking of those who resist the call of Christ, will go away into eternal punishment, which is hell, and the righteous, those who answer the call of Christ, into eternal life. He's telling us it's one or the other. There's no in between. There's no other options. So why would we resist the nudge or the goad of Christ? What are we worried about that we might lose? What's at stake? Authority, family, security, looking dumb, drastic change, whatever it might be. We must remember that the cost of resisting Christ is far greater than anything we can ever lose here on earth, even down to our lives. If our faith costs us our life, so be it. That's what the Bible says. To live is Christ. To die is gain. When we live, we live for Christ. When we die, sweet. Even better, we're going to heaven. It's hard to look at it that way sometimes. Especially when life is good. Like when life is bad, you're like, oh God, just take me home now. (laughs) We've all had those days. (laughs) Lord Jesus, come back. We're ready for the second coming. Now is the time. But then we have days where we're like, man, my life is so good. I don't want to die, right? To live is Christ and to die is gain. No matter what life costs us, when we live for Christ, no matter what happens, good days and bad days, we live for Christ. But ultimately, even if it costs us our life, we've gained it all. For what does it profit a man? If he forfeits his own soul and gains the world. That's what Jesus says. And there's men out there that basically own the world. I mean, I ain't going to get into any conspiracy theories. but and, and even then, you know, to us, they look like they own the world just because they're so loaded. Like, they might not actually have any authority, but they got the world, right? Sometimes the world to us is just having a bunch of money. But what about their souls? What about our souls? And Jesus says in John 17, 3, And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I read this story recently about this um, billionaire who spends $3 million a year on his health. He's in his 40s, and he's trying to stay forever young right he's trying to do all of these anti-aging diets and vitamins and all this stuff to stay young because he's so afraid of death three million dollars a year 
I could eat healthy on a million a year. Three million dollars a year because he doesn't want to get old. You know what that tells me? Something within him tells him what's waiting for you on the other side ain't good. And he's afraid to die. He's afraid to get... He, I mean, those aren't his words. He, he probably isn't saying, oh, I'm afraid to die. He's afraid to die. If you're afraid of getting old, you're afraid to die. These people, they, they, they forfeit their souls to gain the world. And Jesus says, what does it benefit them? And they're realizing it ain't benefiting me nothing because I'm still terrified of death. And Jesus makes it so simple, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Think about this. Three million dollars a year because he's scared of death. And simply all he's got to do is look to Christ to find the eternal life that he's... He doesn't want to die. Eternal life is only found for Christ. That we forfeit this life and gain true life. God doesn't goad us to cause us pain. He does it so that we might avoid our eternal damnation. So that we may know Him and experience the fullness of this life that He has for us. Experience the fullness of His love and eternity with Him. We must stop resisting his goads and his guides. We must accept his gift. We must find true life in him so that we can plow the course that he has for us, so that we can live the life that he's called us to and be receptive to his guidance so that we may experience eternal life with him. So that we can change course in every area of our lives. And walk completely and entirely with Christ. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes this morning.